feel free to open up to 1 John chapter 1 as we begin tonight looking at this marvelous text. I was thinking about the heart of man, particularly the natural man. Uh, I was reading a book uh, over the Christmas break entitled The Faith of the Founding Fathers. And in that book by Dr. Greg Frazier, the He walks through many of the early American founding fathers and the context in which their faith was demonstrated and even walks through what their faith was. And in many cases, he identified a principle that operated among the early Americans and certainly the early early American founders and demonstrated what he would call a theistic naturalism. The idea that man had a God consciousness, awareness of a God, a deity, but God was distant, God was far, he was not knowable nor personal. In documenting this, there was certainly overlaps where you have a theistic deist coming alongside of a Christian, both teaming up with the same agenda, trusting in God, trusting in some higher force to be at work, and yet having a completely different view of God himself. And it caused me to think more and more about the natural state of man. What is man's natural heart? And again, we've studied through Romans 1 and 2. We've seen the text there. Reflecting particularly in Romans 1, when God has said that he has made himself known, his invisible attributes known in creation, that man can look out in creation and they can see the demonstration of the handiwork of God. The natural man, left to his own devices, if he has any consciousness within him at all, can look out at creation and say, there is a God. He wouldn't know what God. He wouldn't be able to draw nearer to that God. He would just know that there is a God, an impersonal force. This was the natural state of man, left to his own devices, his own reasoning, You can go back through the history and see the philosophers, and you can see that the philosophers would reason back to God, making a case of the existence of some deity. And certainly in our own foundation as a country, it was founded in a group of people who recognize there is a deity out there, some power, some force, even if it wasn't necessarily the God of the Bible. The God that is revealed to us. When we come to 1 John, we come to John's personal testimony of the person and work of Christ. The testimony of the gospel and our relationship to the gospel. What John does is John writes this book is he writes this book in such a way that he demonstrates his fatherly love for his audience. You feel that as you read through the text when he calls out my little children I write these things to you chapter 2 verse 1 he calls them and speaks of as a father encouraging he seeks to later in chapter 2 speak to young men and fathers he speaks in such tender terms caring terms as he relates to his audience He writes with an intended purpose, that purpose which is to encourage, that purpose which is to give assurance and confidence to his readers, 
to bring clarity and to bring understanding to their state as believers. He writes to protect, to protect his audience from drifting into uh, what they would be facing on a regular basis, as we'll see tonight. What John does here is he writes to give us profound insight into the work of the gospel so that we would have confidence in God's saving work in us. I figured that this is an appropriate time for us as a church to circle back to this particular book. We started very early in our ministry life looking at this book. Many of you probably weren't even here during that time. In fact, who actually was here? Who was here from the first time? My wife and the Jordans. All right. (laughs) A few others, but that's about it. Yes, so this is a new series for us in regards corporately as a body, but... It's been taught many times, Pastor Rusty teaching through and Pastor Steve through the years and et cetera. So this is a familiar territory for us as we have worked through this book. But it's good for us to once again pay attention to what John writes in this marvelous text. Now, just to kind of set ourselves into the context that which John is writing, you need to understand that in the early church, there were two predominant errors. Two errors that came upon the church. The first was that of the Jews, which was legalism that was pushed upon the church. You have the high point of that debate in Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council. The idea that was facing the church at that particular time is that man, by his own efforts, can uh, add to his righteousness or practice a righteousness that God would be pleased with. And so there was a necessity of keeping the law in order for them to have a righteousness that they can stand before God with. That is soundly refuted, as I said, in Acts 15, the book of Galatians, Romans, and pretty much the rest of the New Testament walking through the description of Christ's work in the gospel. But the second error relates to the book that we're addressing tonight, and that is that error of Gnosticism. And that Gnosticism was manifested in different ways and a lot of different flavors of Gnosticism. But the form of Gnosticism that I want to draw your attention to tonight is that of dualism. The idea of separation between the spirit world and the physical world. There was another form of dualism that believed that there were multiple gods, at least two gods up in all of eternity debating. But that form of Gnosticism wasn't primarily what we're seeking to focus here What we're focusing on here is the form of Gnosticism that made such a distinction between the spirit world and the physical world that they were divided. And as it progressed throughout history, because there was such a distinction, their view of the physical world was filled with corruption. The spiritual world was pure and righteous. You need to understand that during the time that John is writing, John is writing to those influenced by Greek culture and Greek thought. Those who are influenced by Plato and Aristotle. When John is writing, he's writing to Greeks who are influenced by Greek thought. Plato himself was so caught up in the in the view of the Logos that he had he had cultivated a view of Logos the very word that John is going to use in the beginning of this text, and he cultivated a whole idea of the divine being, the logos, as it communicated and built and established all that we have and all that we see has come from the logos. 
You see, John, as he writes, writes to a culture that is influenced by Greek philosophy, Greek mindset. And we can go back and look at that Greek philosophy and mindset, and they would not deny that there was a God. It's just that God would be distant. That God would be far away. Someone that could not be approached. Somebody who you could not have a relationship with. God was distant and far away. And so in the midst of that, John's message comes pouring in. And John's message begins to go completely against everything the Greek mind at that time would have thought and believed. Like I said, as just as an introductory thought, the natural man doesn't mind a God who exists as long as that God is far away. That God who is near that God you're accountable to, that God who judges, that God who holds you accountable, well, now that's infringing. But there's a deity who's in control of all things, who works over nature, who moves and directs in our lives. Well, the natural man does not have a problem with that kind of natural deism. It's demonstrated, again, in the Greek philosophers. The term logos which is used here, if back in here in First John chapter one, notice the. We'll just read verses one through four to set up our thoughts for tonight. Here's what John says: What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. We see in these passages, John's introduction here to this gospel, and he draws our attention particularly to that last phrase at the end of verse 1, concerning the word of life. Everything in these verses relates back to this phrase, the word of life, the logos, the word of life. And as I said, the Greek mind had a concept of logos, a concept of this idea. The Puritan, Petrus van Mistrick, wrote this. He said that there is a dis- distinction in the word rhema from the word logos. The word rhema references Words, it's the same translated as word, but it has the idea of vocabulary. Where the word logos refers to the oration or speaking. So as concluded is that the idea of logos concerns the mind and the will. The philosophers, Aristotle and Plato and others, had developed a sophisticated form of thinking and reasoning a sophisticated form of how to come to knowledge and understanding. 
how to perceive the world we lived in. And in Plato's understanding, the word logos would be an emphasis on the logos being the creator, the one who shaped everything and brought everything into existence. Instead of referring to God as God, we, they had referred to him as the word, the logos. Eusebius, a first century writer in church history, wrote of a particular Stoic. A Stoic is a one who believed in the writings of Aristotle and basically had embraced the, the ethics of Aristotle. And this particular Stoic, by the name of Amelius, had read the book of 1 John and commented in about it, and he said this, and this is obviously a translation, so I'm reading the translation of this. He probably didn't say it exactly this way, but you can get a sense of the translator. Here it is. By Jove, this barbarian perceives with our Plato that the word of God was established in the rank of beginning. I'm not sure if he used the word by Jove. He might have said behold or something like that, but the point was this. This first century Stoic believer in Aristotle's philosophy and ethics and practices read John and said of John that what you just wrote about the Logos is from the beginning. That's exactly what Plato has been saying all this time. The Greek mind had a perception of Logos, a perception of of the divine being who existed. But again, if you go in and read their divine being, you can't draw near to their divine being. You can't know him, for he cannot be influenced by creation. You can't have a relationship with this divine being because this divine being is utterly separate from everything else. And to have a relationship with the physical world would corrupt the divine being so he keeps his distance. That's the best that the Greek mind, the natural mind can do is to take us to an awareness of a deity and then stop there. But that's not the Christian faith. And that's not what John has done here. And so John's message, when John comes in both the Gospel of John and in the book of 1 John, John comes and he starts both books with a discussion about the Logos. Turn over to Gospel of John just to set this up for you. John chapter 1 and verse 1. Remember the statement, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Gospel of John, written in about 85 A.D., written in John starts launching in to the Greeks to give the Gospel to the Greeks, and he enters in taking their terms, and he directs them to the truth. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now back here in 1 John chapter 1, you see one little wrinkle that John does. He has a qualifying phrase to the word. This is the word of life. The logos of life. 
John is going to do, and this is written just five years later, roughly, probably A.D. 90, when this book is written, John is grabbing the attention of his Greek audience, taking a term and a concept and an idea that they are familiar with and then pointing them to the true God. Just as, again, the Word was God, the Word was with God, the Word was God, now we come to 1 John, and he continues to build on this idea. So what we have in our remaining moments tonight is this. What we see in these opening verses are five characteristics of the word of life. Five characteristics that as we look at these characteristics begin to separate that the God of the New Testament, the God of the Christian faith, the God that John is an apostle of is a God that is personal and near that we can draw near to, not some distant deity that we hope would be pleased, but a God that we can have a personal and direct relationship with that we can know. Now notice the characteristic. The first characteristic is this. The word of life is eternal. The word of life is eternal. You see that in verse 1. What was from the beginning. I love what John does in these particular verses because as he begins to lay out, and as we talked about in men's study this weekend, John lays out the divine aspects of Christ with the human aspects side by side, and that is what we're going to see. And here he starts out of the gate with what was from the beginning. What was from the very beginning The emphasis here on this is on eternality. One from the beginning, from eternal. In fact, you can jump down to verse 2. He says that, And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. We're talking about that which was from the beginning, that which was with the Father, that which is providing for us eternal life. We're talking about the eternal Word. This is the message. So just as, again, the Greek minds would reference the Logos being divine and being deity, John also affirms, yes, the Logos is divine. It is from the beginning. It is eternal. And it is interesting as John does this and sets up this particular case. And he uses, a, he doesn't use a masculine form, he, but uses the neuter, that which. That which, that divine being, the divine essence, he, uh, this, the son, ultimately as we know, but he, that which was from the beginning, So that we could even speak of the message of Christ, or we can even emphasize the person of Christ, John doesn't exactly draw our attention to which. He is drawing our idea and our mind to the understanding of the deity of this word, this word of life. He's from the beginning. Not the beginning of the church or the beginning of creation, but from all of eternity. Before anything was, he was, he existed What John emphasizes in this particular phrase is he emphasizes the equality with God that the word of life possesses. And he's emphasizing its existence even before creation. 
And he's emphasizing the essence of the word being equal with the Father, since it is, again, from the beginning. And then one more thing that John is emphasizing in this statement, what was from the beginning, is a separation from the rest of creation. The word of life is different than all that things that were created. It's different. He's eternal. He is divine. But there's more that John unfolds, and this is the second aspect that John makes clear here, is that the word of life is credible. That the testimony of the word of life is credible. Notice again what he says. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, we come with a credible testimony of the word of life. Now this is, again, significant if you understand Gnosticism and the error of Gnosticism. Because Gnosticism so separated the physical world from the spiritual world, they kept them distant that even uh, for Jesus to be recognized as God, they believed that a spirit uh, of God had to come down and come upon the man Jesus, making him a Christ for a period of time, and then leaving him just after he died. Gnostics, again, even some had argued, well, Jesus appeared to be a man. He wasn't actually a man. In various forms, trying to reconcile the apostles' teaching with what they believed, have differing views of Christ, but John is completely different to all of that. He cuts all of that out, says, no, wait. We have heard him. We have seen him with our eyes. We have looked at him, and we have touched him with our hands. All of our senses were involved as we were engaged in interacting with the word of life. This is a credible message, message that comes with eyewitness testimony. Again, this would be absolutely in contrast to anything that Plato and Aristotle and the Greek mind would have thought about. For in their understanding, again, God could not be known. He was a distant deity who couldn't be influenced or affected in any way by his creation, so he was utterly separate. And yet John says, here the word of life, the divine one, the one who is from the beginning, the one who is eternal, the one who has the perfect essence of God, comes and we see and hear and touch him. We interact with him. The word hearing, we heard, has the idea, and again, it's in the perfect. So it is, we heard something in the past, and it has continuing effects until, until today. John, writing in A.D. 90, thinking back to A.D. 30 and earlier, thinking about the life of Christ, thinking about what he heard Jesus say in different events, is still thinking about those things. Of course, remembering Jesus' events, his times of teaching, the way he handled the crowds, the way he interacted with the people, the way he responded to demons, the way the demons responded to him, the way he interacted with the religious leaders, all those things that Jesus all those things that John heard Jesus say, he is reflecting on those things and the impact is still to the day when he's writing this book. 
what we have heard. Perfect tense. Seeing that which we have seen again adds to the eye adds to this that he the phrase with our eyes makes it absolutely clear that what he was seeing he was seeing physically we've seen with our eyes he's not talking about some spiritual sense that we had this kind of spiritual vision of Jesus he's speaking of the actual physically seeing his form we saw him the god The one true God, the word of life, the one who is eternal, the one who is from the beginning, we have seen him with our very eyes. The one whose words are still bouncing around in our minds. The ones whose words still capture our thoughts and attention. This is the one we speak of, the one we've seen, the one we have touched. It's rather interesting, even the idea of touch, because it would be, some had thought, again, for Jesus to be absolutely perfect and to be unaffected by the world, he had to be some kind of spirit being appearing to be physical. That's how he was, some would even argue, that's how he was able to enter through walls and how he was able to break away from crowds that tried to capture him. He was just a spiritual being disappearing. And yet, John adds to it, we have touched him. It's interesting, this idea of touch in the New Testament as it relates to Jesus. Turn over to Luke chapter 24. Remember the little account of the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. And you remember, it's interesting in this account, Beginning in verse 36, it says that while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do, you, do doubts arise in your hearts? Look, they're frightened by Jesus' immediate presence before them, and they are, as verse 37 indicates, thinking that they had seen some kind of spirit, so Christ calls it out. And then notice what Christ does, since they're thinking in their mind, this must be a spirit, this must be a vision, some kind of spirit being. Notice what he says, verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Notice, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. You want testimony? You want affirmation that I'm here? Do you want to know that this is real? Not some imagined experience? Not some dream you're having? Touch and see. Here are my hands. Here are my feet. You can see them yourself. Jesus does the same thing to Thomas in chapter 20 and verse 27 of John's gospel, telling Thomas when he appears to Thomas, put your finger in my side. Go ahead, touch the wound. Go ahead, see and be certain. Turn back to 1 John then. This is exactly what John builds upon in John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. We have touched him. We know that he is not just some spirit being. 
We know that he wasn't some emanation, emanation off of God. We know this wasn't a, a figment of our imagination, some dream of a divine being. This was God incarnate with us. We touched him, physically interacted with him. We can give credible eyewitness testimony to the Son of God because we have heard Him, seen Him with our eyes, looked upon Him, that is gazing upon Him and staring at Him, and we touched Him. doesn't get more credible in this particular testimony concerning the Word of Life. I got ahead a little bit, pointed out who the Word of Life is, but you know. The word of life. The one again, the logos. Now think about that for a moment. If you're in a, Jew, in a Greek culture and you're hearing the term logos and the logos is the creator and the one who created all things and John says we have the message of the logos of life, the word of life. And the, what you think is distance and what you think is impossible to know, we have heard him. We have seen him. He is God. He is what you have been groping for, but he isn't distant. He is near. He isn't far off. He is near us, and you can know him as we know him. How would I know him as you know him? Listen to our testimony. John is going to go on and say, this word of life is at the beginning of verse 2, this life was manifested. It was brought out. It was brought forth. It came into our very presence. Again, this is, when you read this, and our minds read it today, so what's the big deal? For the, for the Greek mind, this is an incredibly big deal because God was always so far away. Even the pantheon of Greek gods read about were always far away. Sometimes coming down and interacting with man but disappearing and abandoning. Christian message immediately was different. Christian message is the message of a near God. A God who is personable, relatable. A God who dwelt among us. And for good reason, as we're going to see through the rest of the book of 1 John, but for now it's simply this, that this invisible, unknown God is now manifest and we give credible testimony to Him. The Word of Life. You can know Him. This leads us to the third point. Not only is the Word of Life credible, it leads us to the truth that it is defensible. The word of life is defensible. As he continues into verse 2, And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. We are giving testimony now. We are giving attention. We are proclaiming him boldly. We're making it known to all of you through our personal testimony and proclamation 
that that which was with the Father, that which was from the beginning, that which was eternal, has been manifested in our very presence. We give an account. Despite, again, the Greek mind, and as I said, this would be an absolute shock to those who are trained in Aristotle's thinking or Plato's thinking, Aristotelian thought or Platonian thought, the idea that somehow God is too distant that you can even know, and John comes along and says, no, actually, I can testify right now to his manifestation he was among us. The things we talk about when proclaim to you the eternal life, the life with God, we can tell you about and to defend it because he was manifest. Physically demonstrating himself before us, we can see and interact with. God isn't cold, indifferent, calculating, setting his creation in motion and then distancing himself and stepping back so as not to interact. No, he is near. More than that, John sees himself in a particular role, and that role, as he described there as the word to testify, is the word we get martyr from. I am bearing witness. I am testifying. I am making known to you, testifying on the grounds that I'll make this known even unto my death. I will proclaim this message boldly, loudly, proclaim to you the eternal life. The one who was, again, eternal. So he recognizes this, the defensibility of the gospel message. as He proclaims it here, and he even identifies his own, his own relationship to it. He comes as a martyr, a witness, a testifier, a proclaimer. So many reasons, certainly because you could have accounted for Christ through the Old Testament prophets, all the Old Testament prophets pointing forward to a day of a Messiah who is going to come. Job anticipated the coming of a Messiah, a Redeemer who is going to deliver. God promised in Genesis 3 of one who is going to come and deliver and crush the head of Satan. God promised to David a seed that was going to come. Daniel looked ahead to the one who was going to be the Messiah, who would ultimately be cut off and then would return. The prophets, as you read through the prophets, were anticipating the coming of this one, the Messiah. Here, now, John calls and says, I give testimony to the eternal life. Again, by using that phrase, the eternal life here, John isn't directly directing his attention back to Jews and the Old Testament thinking. He is calling the Greek to say, listen carefully. What you grope for in the dark, I'm pointing to you in the light that he has come and has manifested himself to us. They can defend it. And again, that would be, for the Greek, significant because the Greek loved to debate over wisdom and knowledge and understanding and how to gain that wisdom and knowledge and understanding 
And John is saying, I can testify. I can bring that knowledge and proclaim to you this message because it was manifest. This leads us to the fourth quality of the word of life. And that the word of life is relational. It's relational. We see this in verse 3. And what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. We might even say beyond relational, this is unifying. You too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And now John takes the Greek mind working from the thought of the word of life to the manifestation of the life to directing us to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ and the Father. A unifying message of fellowship with God. This word of life, which again, emphasizing nearness, we can draw near have fellowship with God, be in unity with God. We can draw near to God. This is what makes, again, the God of the Bible, the God of the Christian message, the God of the Apostle John, the Lord Jesus Christ, different than the deities of the Greek world. Our God is knowable and relatable. We can interact with him and fellowship. Paul said the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We're called into fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is again what John announces here. We proclaim to you this. Apangelio, we make this message known to you. We proclaim it. It's a proclamation of the gospel truth, the things that we've heard, the things we have seen, the testimony given to us from God. We come and deliver to you so that as you hear this message, you engage with us in fellowship. And in this fellowship, we have unity around the message of God. And our fellowship isn't just with one another. Our fellowship is with God himself. The word of life, again, is near us. Maybe if you want to look over to Philippians chapter 1, notice Philippians 1, 3 through 6, how Paul expresses a similar kind of idea of the relationship the Christian has to the gospel. Philippians 1, 3 through 6, Paul says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Notice, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it into the day of Christ Jesus. 
Paul's mind, you are coming into fellowship or coming into participation with us in the gospel. A cooperation in the work. The word, the same word, koinonia, is also demonstrated in 2 Peter 1.4, described as partakers of the divine nature. The emphasis is that when we are brought into the work, we are made fellow workers, we are participants with, we are partakers of, back to 1 John verse 9, we are in fellowship with, we're in fellowship with the gospel, interacting with, again, the word of life in unity with God as we are have believed this message which we have heard. And one more truth, just to, and then draw our thoughts together. Verse 4, the fifth characteristic of the word of life is that it is joyful. The word of life is unchanging, it is credible, it is defensible, it is relational, and it is joyful. Notice verse 4, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. The joy in the proclamation of the gospel message, the joy that is those who hear this truth are brought into fellowship, the joy that man who is groping for God now knows and finds, the joy that comes with confidence and certainty that we have eternal life. As verse 2 indicates, I'm writing that you would know of the eternal life. I proclaim these things to you. I proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. I announce to you the gospel of God to make God known. And it brings joy to us. And that's why we write these things, that we have joy in the fellowship that comes as God's people are brought together and God is received, receives all glory and honor. The gospel message should bring us joy and confidence. And we have many reasons to be filled with joy because of this message, just like John says here. Their joy be made complete, the joy that God has rescued sinners from their darkness, from their groping about, that he has given light to them and given an answer. Again, the Greek mind constantly running around looking for some deity to deliver them, never finding any hope. We have hope. We have the light. We have the Son of God, the eternal life, the eternal one, God, very God, who dwelt among us and walked on earth, the very testimony of the living God before us. And John gives it to us. The Redeemer as he's going to go on and explain in the rest of this book, the one who's come to deliver us from our sins, to redeem us, to set us free from the penalty of sin, the one who stands as an advocate before the Father on our behalf, Jesus Christ the righteous, this one we have fellowship with. And John's heart is filled with joy because the Son has been sent and made known and manifest and has promised eternal life and brings deliverance. 
And so this word of life, again, is absolutely in contrast to the entire Greek mind at that time. And I love that, particularly. It's just kind of some concluding thoughts for us as we come to an end. But I love this because we as Christians come out into a world that is filled with ideologies and filled with lies and filled with its own pursuits and we have the knowledge of God at our fingertips for God has spoken to us, given us divine witnesses that have watched, seen, touched, heard the message and given to us the truth that we can draw people to God by pointing out the truth. They don't have to be distant from God. They can draw near. They don't have to grope about hoping that they find the way. They can find the way to eternal life for the word of life has come and has been made, been proclaimed and testimony has been given. And we have the joy as we share such a message and we call people to faith in Christ, we have the joy to see transformed lives and we have the joy to see the glory of God on display. And so we get to share in John's same joy when he says, so that our joy may be made complete. And can you imagine being John, one of the disciples, small little band of disciples listening to Jesus day in and day out and just marveling at the power and the wisdom demonstrated, marveling at how he responded to the religious leaders, marveling how how uh, uh, even demons came and interacted with him and fled and all of those things. So which miracle was going to be performed today? Yeah, here they were, this small band of disciples around the teacher with no major world impact and now here John is 60 years later and the gospel has gone out from Jerusalem into all the world. Paul's testimony already gone out. John had outlived Paul. Paul's dead by this time and yet there are Gentile churches established and growing. John is at this point point in time looking back at all of church history up to that point from the death of Christ to that moment one of the final apostles left and he can look back and see the spreading of the gospel which was trying to be crushed by the Jewish leaders and there this phrase that our joy may be made complete everybody has to hear this message Everybody has to come to this knowledge. Everybody should hear and, and understand exactly what we saw and we interacted with. This is the joy that we have, that we share this message. So when we write this particular, when John writes this particular book, and as we read through this particular book, he reads with this mindset, I'm bringing you into the light. I'm giving you understanding. And he's writing as a father who is appealing to his own children, calling them to instruct them, and particularly to give them absolute confidence that they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by giving them a series of tests. We can know the living God. And we will pick that up next week when we come back and start in verse 5. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the testimony of your word. Thank you for the riches of this truth. 
we just rejoice in the, at the testimony of the gospel, the eyewitnesses that you have given us to the church. For indeed, we remember the words of Paul that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And indeed, reading through their testimony, we are overwhelmed and we rejoice and we see the the sound doctrine given to the church to establish the church. And we are thankful because we know in our own hearts the, the evidence of your handiwork is all around. Certainly in our natural state, we couldn't deny you even if we didn't want to follow you. But you have opened our eyes to see. You have given us the testimony of your truth. You have transformed our own lives that we do know you as one who is near and close, to whom we can call out, Abba, Father, that we can relate to you and even share in communion, even with the brethren as we encourage one another as your handiwork is in all of our lives, we rejoice to know that this gospel is greater than any one individual, any one of us, that you're accomplishing your good purposes. So we pray that as we work through this particular study together, that you would cultivate a heart that would long after these truths, that would be bold to proclaim them, just as John was bold to complain them, to proclaim them. Even as John headed into the darkness of the Greek mind and called them out of darkness into the light, may we have such boldness ourselves. Not afraid of the ideologies of today. Not afraid of the doctrines of demons that are prolific, not afraid of the corruption of man's heart and the evil that is manifested, but we're bold and confident in the message of life, trusting in your marvelous work, because this did not come from our own imagination nor the imagination of men. This was the message delivered from the beginning, made known from all of eternity, and now has come to the light. May we have great confidence in this, and may its fruits be evident among us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.